year through First and Second Chronicles. And we come now to the end of chapter 22. Our previous study, our last study, was called Dark Days in the History of Judah. And I think the name's appropriate because we saw an example of kings killing their sons. We saw grandmoms killing their grandchildren. It was just a crazy time in the nation. It was descending, spiraling downward very rapidly into idolatry and into sin. And today we're going to look at the attempt of one man to reform the nation, to bring it back to the place where the, what Israel is supposed to be, this model of who God is and what God can do through a people that submit themselves to the will of God. One man seeking to reform the nation. Now, we've already looked at some of what we call reform kings. We saw Asa, we saw Jehoshaphat, these fellows that look to bring in changes morally and spiritually to the nation. This week, we're not really going to look at a reform king, we're going to look at a reform priest. And instead of there being a king that is leading the nation into reformation, it'll be the high priest, a fellow by the name of Jehoiada. Now we left off last week in chapter 22, verse 10. I believe we already read these last three verses, but we'll read them again to give us the context. It says, Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and she destroyed all the royal family of the house of Judah. But Jehoshabiah, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons, who were about to be put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus Jehoshabiah, the daughter of King Jehoram, and the wife of Jehoiada the priest, because she was a sister of Ahaziah, she hid him from Athaliah, so that she did not put him to death. And he remained with them six years, hidden in the house of God, while Athaliah reigned over the land. Now, what we saw at the conclusion of last week's message was that King Ahaziah put himself in the wrong place with the wrong people, and it got himself into trouble. We talked a little bit about making good decisions about the company that we keep necessarily. And so here now, this fella is dead, and his mom, Athaliah, sees this as a golden opportunity for her. She can now, she prob- we, we learned she influenced her son, now she herself can be the queen. It's just a matter of getting rid of some of the other people that might stand in the way. And so we read in verse 10 where it said, Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead. She arose and she destroyed all the royal family. And again, that doesn't sound so bad worded that way, but when you say she destroyed all of her grandchildren, you think, oh my gosh, what kind of a monster is this woman? To assume the throne, she would just simply need to kill off the rightful heirs, her grandkids. To her, it seems that was a small price to pay as long as she could be the queen. Now, verse 11 indicates that there's a woman, a daughter of the king, that's King Jehoram, two kings back, um, sister of Ahaziah. There's a daughter named Jehoshabiah. And she just couldn't let this happen. I'm not going to sit by and watch the promises of God be destroyed by this wicked woman who is looking to kill off the messianic line that would run from David ultimately to the Messiah, Jesus the Lord, and break it in half, and that's it. You break it, it's done. And she says, you know what, I can't. So she scoops up this little boy, he's one year old, she scoops him up and she hides him, it seems, initially in a bedroom there of the palace, under the bed or something, I don't know. But she hides him there, and then eventually she moves him to the temple, and he's in some inner chamber there, 
in the temple. So again, verse 11, Jehoshabiah, the daughter of the king, took Joash, son of Ahaziah, stole him away from among the king's sons who were about to be put to death, and she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. And there in the inner chamber. And it's while he's in the inner chamber of the temple that she calls her husband over, who happens to be the high priest, a guy named Jehoiada, and she says, I think we're in trouble. I, uh, I did something. I don't know if we're going to get in a lot of trouble for this, but here's what happened. And now he's like, okay, here's what we're going to do. Uh, now, they hide him. Six years hiding a little boy. Have you ever tried to keep a little boy quiet, you know, for a period of time here? I was telling earlier that when we were in Israel, my son, I guess he was 13 or so at the time, running on top of all the antiquities, doing like this parkour thing where you jump from one thing to the other, uh, running on all these things. Now, he was about 13 uh, and running. And finally, the tour guide said, your son can't run on the 4,000-year-old rocks, you know, that are monuments to whatever. You have to tell him to stop. And I said, I tried. You know, I can't tell the kid to stop. And so I can imagine what Jehoiada had to go through trying to keep this little boy quiet. But after six years of hiding, he finally decides, you know, it's time to present this boy. His name is Joash. It's time to present Joash to the nation as the rightful king. High drama. This would make a great TV show, wouldn't it? Or a movie or something. Here, let's take a look. Starting in chapter 23, it says, In the seventh year, Jehoiada took courage, entered into a covenant with the commanders of hundreds, their names being Azariah, the son of Jerom, Ishmael, the son of Obed, Messiah, the son of Adiah, and Elishaphat, the son of Zikri. And they went about through Judah. They gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah and the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel, and they came to Jerusalem. And all the assembly made a covenant with the king in the house of God. And Jehoiada said to, him, to them, Behold, the king's son, let him reign as the Lord spoke concerning the promises of David. Now you've got to put this into perspective. Jehoiada and his wife, they've been keeping a secret for a period of about six years. I'm sure just a few people knew of this particular secret. Why take any other chances? Because if word filters back to Queen Athaliah, we've already seen this is a ruthless monster of a woman. And if she would do those things to her grandkids, she wouldn't think twice about doing it to Jehoiada and to his wife Jehoshabiath. And so, without a doubt, these guys have kept this thing very, very secretly. And the idea of hiding the kid, but now making the kid known, causes, it, says, it seems to say, great fear in the heart of Jehoiada. Notice the verse there, it says, and Jehoiada took courage. That tells me that he was scared to death to do what he was about to do. And that is attempt to kind of overcome evil with good and return uh, the rightful king to the place on the throne. Scared to death. But he did it anyway. You know, one of the things I've discovered in my walk with the Lord is there are times where God is prompting me to do something or to say something that causes great fear. There are times where, you know, God will say, hey, tell that guy how much I love him. You know, some unbeliever, tell him how much I love him. And I don't know why, but in my heart, it causes great fear. Oh, oh I don't know, Lord. What if he, what if that, what if this happens? What if he makes fun of me or something? And, and I get nervous and I get scared and sometimes I wrestle, I plug through that. Other times I just sort of back away and I don't say a word. I'll pray for him or whatever. But it causes great fear. It causes trembling. There are times in my life where the Lord sort of puts his finger on an area of my life and he says, you know what? That attitude, 
that habit, that behavior, that's sinful. We want to, let's clean that up. Let's forsake that. Let's put that away. And in my heart, it causes great fear. Because it's something I've become comfortable with. It's something I've done for many, many years. Lord, I don't know if I want to give that particular thing up. That's going to hurt too much. It's going to be too hard, too difficult. And it causes great fear. And it's another example where the Lord says, take courage and do it anyway. You know, sometimes I think that we approach these things that are causing us fear, we approach it as sort of, you know what, when God gives me a peace, then I'll move forward. You know, I'll just sort of wait until God makes me feel okay about this particular thing. And one of the things that I've discovered in my walk is many times you won't be at peace until you do move forward. That the peace isn't going to come that you walk in that, but you're going to go with trepidation and you're going to say, can I tell you about the Lord? Or you're going to say to a person uh, some sort of a message or you're going to make a difficult decision. And then after you've made that decision, after you've already moved forward in obedience, then God begins to just sort of relieve that whole burden that was there. And you say, Lord, why did I wait so long to forsake that or to say that or to do that? So it's not a matter of whether you're going to be scared or not. You're going to be scared. It's a matter of whether you will obey or not. Do you think Peter was scared when the Lord said, come on out and walk on the water? Absolutely. Do you think Peter was scared when 50 days after the crucifixion of Christ, the Lord said to him, I want you to stand up in that crowd of thousands of people and I want you to proclaim my name. Absolutely he was scared. We already read about Solomon when he took over the throne from David. David said to him about fear not. And again, that phrase, fear not, in that particular place in the scripture is, don't be paralyzed with fear. So it wasn't, don't be afraid. What's the matter with you? You're a girl. Stop it. You know, and be a man and stand up or something. It wasn't that sort of a situation. What it was is, don't let your fear paralyze you. Move forward anyway, even in the midst of that apprehension. We see that Joshua, as he's coming into the land, he's the new leader. Moses is off the scene. God said, you, Joshua, go. How many times in chapter 1 of the book of Joshua does it say, be strong and courageous? Be strong and very courageous. Why does it have to be said over and over? Because Joshua was afraid. We're going to have circumstances in our lives that cause fear. That should not be the roadblock that prevents us. And as the Lord is directing and the Lord is leading, if he's telling us to move forward that, and, and as we walk in the Lord, we sense his voice, we know when it's from him, then we need to walk forward, even if we are fearful. We need to, like Jehoiada, it says he took courage. And I'd encourage you to do that. Now, moving on, he has a dilemma. How do I get an army of people to Jerusalem to overthrow Athaliah without Athaliah knowing that I'm gathering an army of people to overthrow her here? How do I do that without raising suspicion? Well, the first thing that he does, again, is found in verse 1, and that is he gathers the commanders of hundreds. It's actually four men. He gathers them up and he says to him, them, somehow he communicates to them his plan. Now, he doesn't necessarily know where they're at. And, and so you can imagine he's sort of like hinting and poking and prodding and sort of getting an idea, mm, Athaliah. And then he's looking at their face to see what kind of face they make and is there a little bit of a frustrated face in there. He's trying to expand his inner circle here. And I guess at, at some point after determining, you know what, I'm going to go for it. Somehow after determining that, I think these guys are my, on my side. I can't know for sure. He says to them, hey, what would I tell you if, or what would you say if I told you that maybe, perhaps, possibly, there could somehow be another king? 
uh, ruling this nation. And then these four guys, they sort of look around and they're like, let's go for it. And he's like, great, let me tell you the whole story. And he explains to them perhaps what was going on. Now additionally, verse 2 says he sends them forth after they're on board to gather additional people. Look at verse 2 again. And they went about through Judah and gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah and the heads of the father's houses and they came to Jerusalem. And so just like Jehoiada was poking and prodding to find out, it seems that these guys were. And you can imagine the priests and the Levites. Here's somebody coming to them, commanders of the military, coming to them and starting to kind of beat around the bush about a coup. Are you going to trust these commanders? They're standing there with Uzis or something. Are you going to trust them and say, yeah, let's do it. And then they're like, aha, we knew you weren't real, and we got you, sort of thing. So it's this big game of cat and mouse. Everyone is kind of reluctantly moving in and saying, yeah, let's do it. Now, I don't think the commanders share the full story with these Levites. They sort of let them know we're thinking coup. But they're not telling the whole story. we got a little boy hiding in a back room here. We're going to bring him out. Because as you look at verse 3, there seems to be an element of surprise as Jehoiada, it says, Jehoiada said to them, Behold, the king's son. It's almost like there's an element of surprise. You're like, ah. Oh. However, if you knew there was some sort of a plan, and then the plan is a seven-year-old boy, and you're discovering this, how's that going to make you feel? I cannot believe I signed up for this. What a mistake. You know, a seven-year-old boy is going to do it here, but the reality is this seven-year-old boy is just a tool. But he's the reality of the promise of God, that God said he would preserve that line, that family line, making its way all the way to Jesus. And for six years, most people felt God failed. I can't believe it failed. And now this boy comes out there, and you see, God, you were faithful. I didn't know how you were going to be in this, but you were And Lord, this is the boy. And so there's sort of this excitement here that is going to develop. Jehoiada says, behold your king. Again, imagine the movie scene and their faces as this little boy is brought out. Now Jehoiada in verse 4 begins to reveal the plan. Again, the situation, how do you get an army to Jerusalem without drawing the attention of Athaliah and those that are loyal to her? And so it reads this way. This is the thing that you shall do. Now if we were in a movie... It would get real quiet, and and they'd whisper, and then we'd have to come back after commercial break to find out what they were going to do. I watch a lot of TV. It says, this is the thing you shall do. Of you priests and Levites who come off duty on the Sabbath, one-third shall be gatekeepers, one-third shall be at the king's house, and one-third at the gate of the foundation. And all the people shall be in the courts of the house of the Lord. Let no one enter the house of the Lord except the priest and the ministering Levites. They may enter, for they are holy, but all the people shall keep the charge of the Lord. The Levites shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hand, and whoever enters the house shall be put to death. Be with the king when he comes in and when he goes out. So what Jehoiada is going to do, you may recall when we were studying, when David sort of began to gather up all the materials that were going to be used for the temple, and he began to put a, like a, an, they call it the order of David, a plan in place for how the temple would operate. Well, one of the things that he would do is they would have thousands of, of priests and Levites that would live in other parts of the nation, they would come to Jerusalem for two weeks out of the year. They'd actually come for one week, go home, come back, you know, 40 weeks later and and do another week. But they would come to Jerusalem for a week or so at a time, and they would do their ministry. 6,000 would come in. These guys are just about to get off shift. These guys would take over. These guys would leave. 
And what he decides to do is he said, look, 6,000, 6, that's 12,000 people. And so when these guys, before they leave and as these guys are entering, that's when we'll have the coup. That's when we'll overthrow things. And he takes one-third of them. You look at verse uh, 4 there. He says he puts one-third of the men at the gate. He puts one-third of the men at the king's house. These are the people that are going off-duty. He said, before you guys go, i got one more job for you. One-third of you go over there to the gate. One-third of you go over toward the king's house. And then one-third he puts out what's called the gate of foundation. Uh, King James, I think, says the gate of sewer, S-U-R. They believe that that was a a pathway, a road, that, like a, a trail that led from the temple itself to the king's palace, not very far away. It was only for the, um, the queen or the king and his or her officials to walk on. And so they put one-third of the, these Levites there, soldiers, uh, but Levites in particular. That's not their real job, being a soldier. And he puts them there. So they have this temple, if you will, and the temple is the building as well as the courtyard. They have it surrounded here. Remember, the little boy is inside the temple building itself. So the whole place is surrounded with these folks here. And it says that Jehoiada, in verse 8, it says, The Levites and all Judah did, according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded, they each brought his men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath, for Jehoiada the priest did not dismiss the divisions. And Jehoiada the priest gave to the captains the spears, and the large and small shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of God. So these are essentially trophies. Now David had reigned 250 years earlier, and during his battles with the Philistines and all that, he had his mighty men, and they had these shields, they had these spears. They took them, and they put them in the temple sort of as trophies back to the days of King David. Well, they'll do the trick. It doesn't matter if that's some gold sword that hasn't been used in 200 years. It'll do the trick when you shove it into somebody there, and that shield will protect you. So they begin to pass these trophies out, these swords and these shields out to the people here. And then verse 10, And he set all the people as a guard for the king, every man with his weapon in hand from the south side of the house to the north side around the altar in the house. And then they brought out the king's son, this little seven-year-old boy, stood him in front of them and put a crown on him and gave him the testimony. Now, the testimony is reference to the law of Moses. So the Torah, the first five books of your Bible, that's called uh, the Torah, or that would be the testimony. And there, in those books, some of them are narratives that tell stories of events that occurred, but some of them, Leviticus, uh, the book of Deuteronomy in particular, it's the law itself. It's an explanation. This is how the people of Israel are to live, and this is how the leader of Israel is to lead. And it seems that little Joash has his own copy of it. And I suspect that Jehoiada, during that time in the inner chamber in those little rooms there, that he's teaching them. And he's saying, you know what, this is what Athaliah is doing. And here, this is why it's sin. Because it says so in the book of the Testimony, he shouldn't be doing it. When you become king, little guy, don't do those things. And so he's got his own little book of the Testimony. They hand it back over to him here. They give it to him here. And the people yell, verse 11b, They proclaim him as king, and they yell, Long live the king. Now, Queen Athaliah only lives just across the street, not very far away. And she's hearing the commotion of the the football stadium crowd. Long live the king. Long live the king. And she's hearing that. I don't know if she can make out the words, but she hears a commotion. And so she makes her way over there. And you can imagine, you know about Athaliah. How do you think she's going to respond to this circumstance? See, you know, just the mad and angry and who am I going to kill? Let me find somebody. 
Anyway, it goes, when Athaliah, verse 12, when she heard the noise of the people running and praising the king, she went into the house of the Lord to the people. Now remember, the house of the Lord was part building, part patio, part courtyard. That's the part she runs into. She runs into that courtyard area there. She sees what's going on, doesn't necessarily know the whole circumstance, but she's hearing these people yell, long live the king, and she's going to respond. Verse 13, and when she looked, there was the king, the little boy, standing by his pillar at the entrance to the building, and the captains and the trumpeters beside the king, and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets, and the singers with their musical instruments leading in the celebration. And Athaliah tore her clothes, and she cried, treason, treason. And so the, the circumstance in front of her is obvious. All of these people that are standing around this little boy and blowing trumpets and singing songs, they are announcing, this is our king. And she has the audacity to yell, treason, treason, and, which is ironic because she's the one who killed the rightful kings and committed treason, treason. So she tears her clothes, which is a symbol of like a repentance, not necessarily repentance to God, but of the circumstance. This is horrible. And she rips her clothes. She's yelling, treason, treason. And I think Jehoiada is probably thinking, you're right, treason, treason, but it's you, lady. You're the one that's committing this treason. Verse 14, Then Jehoiada the priest brought out the captains who were set over the army, saying to them, Bring her out between the ranks, and anyone who follows her is to be put to death with the sword. For the priest said, Do not put her to death in the house of the Lord. So they laid hands on her, they dragged her out, and when she got to the entrance of the horse gate, basically just outside of the temple area there, they put her to death. They executed her there. Now, with this wicked queen out of the way, Joash is now free to lead the nation and to institute the reforms to bring the nation back in line with who God is and what God wanted to do through the people of Israel. Now, you might think of that, come on, seven-year-old boy leading the nation. I know. I'm with you. As you'll see in the passage here, Joash, the seven-year-old, is not really leading. Jehoiada is the one that is leading and guiding the nation. You know, he's deferential to Joash here, but it's really Jehoiada, the high priest, that is leading the nation. And notice it says in verse 16 that Jehoiada made a covenant between himself and all the people and the king that they should be the Lord's people. They should be the Lord's people. Throughout the history of the Old Testament, from the days when Abraham was called to come and follow the Lord, they were referred to as the people of the Lord. They were people that had a unique relationship with the God of heaven. They were called in, in some places the apple of God's eye. And he called them to be his people so that they could be, to use New Testament terminology, a city that is set on a hill. That they could live their lives in such a way as God directed them that people would look at their lives and say, man, you know what? I wish we lived our lives that way. As a nation and as individuals. And the opportunity was given to individuals to become proselytes to the faith. Gentiles that become a Jew. A proselyte is the term that is used here. All based on the observation of the lives that they were living and the way in which God was blessing their lives. And sadly, during this last 15 years of uh, these three kings and queens that had come before, the nation had spiraled rapidly downward. And they were no longer this city upon a hill, but they became just like every other nation that was around them, worshiping all the false gods and all that was associated with that, the injustice that moved into the nation as the people no longer honored God. So why should I bother honoring other people? It's every man for himself. 
and do whatever it is, and so on and so forth. They were no longer a blessing. But here now, Joash is king. Jehoiada is his key advisor, and they're going to reign. I think we have a slide here looking at where we fit here. All right, so you can kind of see this was Queen Athaliah here. She's the queen that we just talked about, and she's replaced. And this guy, Joash, is going to go on and reign for 40 years. Now, one of the things that I w want to draw your attention about my thing, you'll notice we have the yellows and the grays here. The yellows represent a good king. The grays represent a bad king. And if you look at Joash, he's sort of like funky color. All right? It's sort of a gray and a yellow mixed together. It's the best I could do with the color palette uh, on PowerPoint here. And that's designed to show you that he, he did well, but then he did terribly bad. All right? That's the best that I could do there. So we'll talk more about how he did or what caused him to do so terribly bad as we, we move a little bit further in the study of his life. But he's going to reign for the next 40 years. You can see the time period, 835 to 796. David was king around the year 1000. So we're moving further and further away from King David, closer and closer to uh, the time that the Lord Jesus Christ would come. Uh, and we have a reformer king or a reformer priest led by this guy Jehoiada. Jehoiada begins to implement the reforms that are needed to bring the nation back spiritually and morally. And the first one we see is found in verse 17. It says, Then all the people went to the house of Baal and tore it down, his altars, his images. They broke in pieces and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before their altars. So there was a temple built to a foreign god, Baal, there in Jerusalem. We learn in other places that Athaliah actually sent people to the temple of God to take the implements that they would use, instruments that they would use to worship Jehovah, take them and bring them over to the temple Baal. There's another story historians tell us that there were doors, gold-covered doors, that led into the temple that they were taken and put on the altar of Baal. And so here now, Jehoiada says, we've got to get rid of that. And they tear down this building. And then the second portion of verse 17, they kill the high priest to Baal there in Jerusalem. And now you've dealt with those areas of sin in the life of the nation of Judah. And now Jehoiada can restore the proper worship at the temple. And as you look at verse 16 and following, it says, Jehoiada posted watchmen for the house of the Lord under the direction of the Levitical priests and the Levites whom David had organized to be in charge of the house of the Lord, to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, as it's written in the law of Moses, with rejoicing, with singing, according to the order of David. So those uh, methods of worship that Moses introduced back at the tabernacle as they wandered through the wilderness, and that David introduced that we saw in our study of First Chronicles, they're being restored. Fifteen years, they had drifted away. The people weren't worshiping as they were to worship. The temple was being defiled. People that shouldn't be going in were going in. Now here, Jehoiada is saying, bring me the Levites, bring me the priests, put them where they need to be so we're doing this properly in our nation. It continues, he said, he stationed gatekeepers at the gates of the house of the Lord so that no one enter, would enter who was unclean. He took captains and nobles and governors and all the people of the land and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord, marching through the upper gate to the king's house. So they have a parade leading the kid from the temple to his house, sit on his throne, and so on. Verse 20, notice, And they set the king on the royal throne, so all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword. What I see here is an instance where you have everybody in society doesn't want anything to do with this Athaliah, but nobody's going to say anything. 
I'm not saying anything. She'll kill me. And so everyone is quiet about it until somebody finally stands up and says, we're going to do something about this. And then everybody else is like, thank God. We were hoping somebody would stand up. I think the Lord desires that somebody would stand up in our day, that somebody would sort of take the lead, and whether it's a small group or it's a nation of people, would come behind that person and say, you said what I was too afraid to say. You said what I didn't know how to articulate. You said and did what I thought could never be done. Jehoiada said, you know what, God, you're going to have to do something amazing. And I'm willing to be the hands here if you're going to work through me. And so they throw off this lady, Athaliah, here, and the city is at rest. I imagine that there was a small sort of humming going through the town that was something to the effect of ding dong, the witch is dead. The witch is. You know, and people are just like, this is awesome. I don't know what's so awesome, but it's just awesome. We've been set free from, it calls her later, that wicked queen or that wicked witch. Well, chapter 24, it begins now to look at the reign of Joash. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean this took place when he was seven and a half years old. This could be 10, 15 years later. He'll rule for 40 years. But we see here that Joash, uh, this, well, I'll read it to you, verse 1. It says, Joash was seven years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And Jehoiada got him two wives, and he had sons, and he had daughters. Now, you might look at that, and you might think that this kid got married at seven. Not just the one person to a couple people. That doesn't necessarily, it's not implying that he was seven years old when he got married. That could have happened 10 years from now, 15 years. What's troubling to me is why Jehoiada would get him two wives. We've already looked at the examples from the Old Testament, the law that specifically said that the kings and anybody wasn't to accumulate wives unto themselves. And so I don't know what Jehoiada is thinking here by getting him these two wives, but he does. But what's more significant, I think, in verses one or verse 2, actually, is the phrase, and Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada. Now, we've seen those types of phrases. As a matter of fact, going back to that timeline, that's how we determine if it's going to be a yellow or a gray. If it has a verse that says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, he did that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. That determines if they're yellow or gray. So here we read that he, Joash, did what was right. So he's yellow. So I read that, and I'm like, yeah, I like it. I like reading about a good guy and seeing how they're going to do there and their forms they're going to make. But then we see a phrase that's added to the statement, and it says, all the days of Jehoiada. And I read that, and I'm like, uh-oh. What does that mean? But we're not told what it means. We'll learn what it means as we move into the next chapter here. Uh, but I'll just give you a little hint. You can read ahead here. The story that you're going to see, and the reason why he's part yellow and part gray, is because Jehoiada, uh, Joash is an example of a man that had a faith, that was dependent on somebody else. The first few months or so where I began to kind of come around to following the Lord and, and things like that, my faith was dependent on my girlfriend. So my girlfriend invited me to youth group, and I only went to youth group because she was there. You know, and I went to church because you know, she'd be upset if I didn't go. So the faith that I had was dependent upon another person. I'll tell you more about it when we get to that uh, next chapter. It's kind of funny, um, involving some lady that gave me a big kiss. Uh, when I went to church. And so you have to come back next week and you have to find out what that's all about. It was peculiar. Well, anyway, verse 4, let's keep reading here. It says, After this, Joash decided to restore the house of the Lord, and he gathered the priests and the Levites, and he said to them, Go out to the cities of Judah and gather from all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year and see that you act quickly. Now, as one of the reformed kings, 
Joash's mission is to reform the, uh, to sort of restore the temple, the outer structure, as well as the worship that takes place here. It had been 15 years. In some cases, the temple had been ransacked by Athaliah and, and her folks that she sent to do that. In other cases, just the general daily upkeep wasn't happening. So the building was falling into disrepair. And so here is Joash, and he says, look, I want to fix this temple up so it could be a proper place to worship the God of heaven. And to do that, he's going to need cash to do that. So he says to the people, go out, collect money so we can rebuild the temple, uh, restore the temple. And he gives the instructions that they would do it quickly. Don't delay in doing this. Get out there now and go do it. We'll do it next week. No, no, do it now, as he said. Do it quickly. Now, for whatever reasons, in verse 5 we read that they don't listen to him. This makes me think that he's still somewhat young. You know, he's 8 or 10 years old or whatever, and he says, I want to rebuild the temple. You people, go get money or whatever. And they're like, okay, I'll go get money when Jehoiada, or when the high priest tells me to go get money. So they don't do it. But notice verse 5. It says, they don't act quickly. And the king summons Jehoiada the chief, and he says to them, why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and Jerusalem the tax levied by Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the congregation of Israel for the tent of testimony? For the sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, had broken into the house of God and had also used all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord for the Baals. So for whatever reason, Jehoiada is not moving forward or not moving forward quick enough here to collect the money. And so Joash comes up with a new plan. Look at verse 8. He says, The king commanded, and they made a chest, and they set it outside the gate of the house of the Lord. And proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to bring in for the Lord the tax that Moses, the servant of God, had laid on Israel in the wilderness. The reference that we're going back to is found in Exodus chapter 30. So Joash is not just making up some random tax, like we seem to do in the United States. Uh, He's not just making up some random tax here. He's going back to Exodus chapter 30 to something that is called the census tax. In another place, that phrase, the census tax, is also referred to as the atonement money. So it says in Exodus 30, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord. This census tax, this atonement money, was something that everyone in the society had to pay of this fixed amount of money based on the size of their family and so on, the proceeds of which would be used to either build or to keep going what's called here the service of the tent of meeting. That tent of meeting is what, in this time period we're studying in Second Chronicles, is the temple. All right. So it started as the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. Eventually they built a permanent structure, which is called the temple. And Joash is pretty familiar. How many of you knew Exodus 30, 16 off the top of your head? He's familiar with the testimony of the law, and he says, you know, there's something in there about a, a tax to pay for the temple. Let's look that passage up there, and they Google it, and they find it, and they bring it in, and it says, good, that's what we're going to do. And so he says, we're going to collect that tax. Now, in this case, though, what he does is he says, let's put a big box that's out in front of the courtyard area. As people come in, we'll cut a hole in the top of it, and people can come in, drop their money, and they can go on their way, and they can worship. I know there are a lot of churches, a lot of Calvaries do this, actually, churches that have their own building, not, you know, not renting space like we are, where they'll have outside sort of the, the chest, the box. And, and there's no buckets going around. I know you love when the buckets come around. There's no buckets going around, but there's that chest. And there's an aspect of it I like, because there's no 
like everybody seeing me drop the nickel in and the usher looking at me like, what's up, man? You got no money? You know, I know you got some cash. None of that. It's just you and the Lord. You go there, you put the money in as the Lord directs and as the Lord leads. And so here they have this particular chest that is out there. And you know that the Lord is in this. And he's abundantly blessing because notice how the people bring the tax. Verse 10 says, and all the princes and all the people rejoiced and brought their tax. When was the last time you rejoiced paying your taxes? You know, it's a miracle of God, clearly, that these people would write out their tax check and give great rejoicing unto God. Now, I'm being a little facetious here because even though this is called a tax, it's not a tax in the sense that you and I pay. This would be closer to a tithe or an offering that they make to their local church. And here you have a group of people that are giving to the work of God with great joy, which is exactly how the New Testament says that we are to give to the work of the Lord. Giving to the work of God is a spiritual discipline that we learn about in the Scriptures. So reading your word is a spiritual discipline. Committing yourself to gathering in fellowship is a spiritual discipline. Praying is a discipline. Fasting is a discipline. Serving is a discipline. And giving to the work of the Lord is a spiritual discipline. And the New Testament teaches us that it's not a discipline that we got to do, but it's a discipline that we get to do. Reading your word is not a discipline that you got to do. It's one that you get to do, to sit and to meet with the Lord. Sometimes you've got to plug through and do it anyway, when you'd rather be out running around or playing or something like that. But it's something you get to do. And giving to the work of God is something we get to do. Now, it occurs to me that some of us here may not be familiar with the word tithing. Tithing is an old English word, which simply means one-tenth. And it's become so common in usage that people in the church and in other places, they'll just simply say the tithe. You know, we'll, at now, we'll accept your tithes and your offerings. And most people understand what that means. But tithing is an idea of giving one-tenth. And the scripture is clear that in the Old Testament, the Jew, Jewish people were commanded to bring the tithe, a tithe of their income, a tenth of their income. Now that could be a tenth of their livestock. It could be a tenth of the, the grain or the produce. It could be a tenth of their cash, whatever it may be. But they were told to bring a tenth uh, to the work of the Lord. And if they didn't, they were disciplined for that. If you read in the book of Malachi, one of the minor prophets, which we'll study this summer, if you look in the book of Malachi, there, Mal God speaking through Malachi, pronounces a judgment on the people, the Jewish people, because they had stopped bringing the tithe. I got too many bills. Too much stuff I got to pay for. I can't be given to the Lord. You know? Or at the end of my bills, if I got a nickel or two, or a dollar, or five dollars, ten dollars, you know, then I'll put that there. So notice what it says here. It says, from the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, well, how shall we return? What do you want us to do? And so then the Lord says, will man rob God? And yet you are robbing me. You're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? This is the children. God's having a conversation through Malachi, kind of talking to himself here, uh, to the people. He says, but how have we robbed you? You've robbed me in your tithes and in your contributions. Because of that, you're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse that they may, there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test as the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I think that's very important to underline that, that there is no more need. 
Because there are a lot of people in the New Testament era, the church era today, that will preach this message of you give to God and he'll pour down Cadillacs in your front uh, driveway here. This, pro- this scripture doesn't necessarily promise that you're going to get wealth. This isn't some get-rich scheme. But it speaks of he will pour out of heaven a blessing so that you'll have no more need. He'll provide. That doesn't make sense because I have my bills. I know I have my bills and I see them there. And I know, man, there's a lot there. Oh, boy. And the first thing that I've done, this is something I, I began to do when I first started following the Lord and decided to give to the work of the Lord. The first bill that I pay, quote unquote, is my tithe. Because I know if I wait to the end, it'll shrink a little more. Oh, yeah, I got to send the kids up for baseball. Oh, and there's a little less, and oh, there's a little less, and there's a little less. And now I'm out of money. I say, Lord, I'll get you next time. I promise you. So the first thing that I do here, and then what I discover is that the Lord pours down for what I need. Again, he says, I will rebuke the devourer, the bugs that would devour your fields, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field should not fare to bear, says the Lord. Now, I don't have a field. All right? And I don't have bugs that are out there eating up my field. But I have a dishwasher that keeps on somehow miraculously running and a washing machine and my car just doesn't seem to break down. And the Lord has the ability to provide in those ways. And he keeps things running beyond when they should be running, it seems. Then it goes on and says, And then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be delights as the Lord of hosts. Now the Jewish people here, clearly, you can see the passage, they're expected to bring in the tithe. And not to do so was said to be robbing God. Now, here's the question, though, and I've made some correlations to my own life of giving and so on, but here's the question. In the New Testament, are we obligated to give 10% and to not do so, would that be actually us robbing God? Are we obligated to give 10% of our weekly or monthly income to the church? And based on my understanding of the Scripture, the answer is no. That the New Testament doesn't teach that we are obligated to tithe. Now that seems ironic coming from, you know, the pastor who, you know, we could use the funds to build this or to do that or to go there or to hire that person and so on and so forth. But to otherwise to say otherwise I think would be dishonest. And almost manipulative here. You don't want to be in sin, do you? Well then you should sit right down now and write me that check here. I don't think that the New Testament obligates us to give ten percent. But I do believe that the New Testament teaches us that we are to be giving to the work of God not out of compulsion, not with a fixed figure or percentage here, but rather what the Lord directs and what the Lord guides. And the idea is that not that we got to give, but that we get to give, that we get to participate in what God is doing. So then again, the question is, well, how much should we give? Should it be 10%? Should it be 20? You know, look at all that God did for me. You ever hear that sermon? All that God did for you, don't you love him back? You know, should we give 30%? Does that demonstrate how much I love the Lord? Well, this is what the Apostle Paul said. This is found in 2 Corinthians 9. It says, the point is this. I love that in the Bible. Thank you, Paul. Just tell me what I need to know. You know what I mean? Because Paul's smart, and I'm not as smart. You know, and something like, where are you going? I don't know where you're going here, and I've got to slow it down. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind to give, not reluctantly and not under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He who supplies the seed to the sower, the bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing, and he will increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. 
For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of their service, this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Did you catch that there? It says that God allows us to participate in his work of miraculously providing for another one of his children. And in doing so, by God moving on our hearts to provide, and then those funds providing and meeting the needs of his children that have been praying, oh God, help, and that going forth and helping them, then we are used by God to cause another to give thanks and glory to God. That's awesome. That's not something, oh man, I've got to help somebody else praise the Lord and bring him glory. That's I get to participate in what God is doing so that another recognizes that God is able, that God has heard their prayer, and they give him thanks and they give him glory. Jesus said in the New Testament, now it's not found in the Gospels, so you'll never find it there, but his disciples in the book of Acts say, Jesus told us, so it's not recorded in the Gospels, but it is found in the book of Acts that Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I remember being a kid, I never believed that truth. I was convinced firmly that it's more blessed to receive than it is to give. But once I had kids of my own, I began to discover the joy of giving to them in this particular case and to see the way that they're blessed because, if you will, of my selflessness by going out and buying this particular thing for them. And it brings a great joy to the heart. And truly, we discover this reality that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And so, if you haven't discovered that truth for yourself, then I would encourage you to begin giving cheerfully, as Paul said, God loves a cheerful giver. Find things that you're passionate about. Find things that you just love to see God do something there, or there's an organization that is already doing something amazing, and you say, I want to be in on that. I want to be a part of that. And give to that. Give to the local church, whatever it may be, but find it so you can give cheerfully. Now, here's an interesting thing. The, the verse there for cheerful, or the word I should say, could be translated hilariously. When was the last time you were hilarious about something? Yesterday we were playing uh, those beanbag quake things, you know, that you throw it through the hole, whatever, or playing this game, and something happened during the game, and I just started laughing and laughing and laughing, and I really couldn't stop laughing. Matter of fact, this morning I was eating breakfast, and I thought about it, and I just started laughing again. And I was like, that is just so funny. And it was, it was a hilarious circumstance. When was the last time you sat down with your checkbook? <laughs> this is going to be awesome. And you just started giggling. You know, and you would like, God, this is awesome. I want to be a part of what you're doing. I'd encourage you, stretch yourself to the place where you're involved in what God is doing and give hilariously to that. And you'll be so blessed. And God will provide miraculously. And I've seen, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. I was a young guy, I was 21 or whatever. My wife, we just got married. Uh, we were living down in an apartment. All of our money, it seemed, went to you know, pay the $600 rent that we paid back then and gas money and so on and so forth. And I got these four little letters, you know, so, hi, I'm going on this mission trip. Would you like to support us? It's going to be great. And these four letters there, and I wanted to support each of them. And I really didn't have a lot of extra money. You know, we were just kind of getting by. It was either that or live with mom and dad, which isn't really fun for newlyweds. So we, we decided, Lord, we've got to do whatever it takes to get our own place. And so we found our own place there. And I really wanted to support these things. And I sat down and I said, you know what, Lord, I'm going to do it. And so I wrote this check out to each of them, uh, put it in there, hope they didn't bounce, something like that. And I went out, my wife and I, we took our dog for a walk. And we're wandering around the streets of Lambertville where we lived back then. And when I came home, uh, we had a little mailbox thing, the key, and you go in. 
And I looked in, and there was an envelope from uh, the Internal Revenue Service. And in there it says, Dear Sir, you mistakenly paid us. I, I wrote four checks for $25, 100 bucks. They said, You mistakenly paid us $100 extra. Here's your refund check for that mistake. Please be more careful next time. And I was like, ah, you're an awesome Lord, you know, that sort of thing. And it was just great. It was fun to be a part and watch God provide. Would I have liked a $10,000 check for my step of faith or whatever? Yeah, that would have been great, you know what I mean? But you know what? The Lord provided. And he has taken us through. We've been married now 20 years or so, and he's always provided what we needed here. Well, back in Second Chronicles here, the people, they're bringing these gifts. They're rejoicing. They're paying the tax. Look at verse 11. Whenever the chest was brought to the king's officers, by the Levites, when they saw that there was much money in it, the king's secretary and the officer of the chief priest would come. He would empty the chest, and he would take it and return it to its place. Thus they did day after day, and they collected money in abundance. So I don't know how big the chest was. I'm sure it wasn't a shoebox. But they're filling this thing up every day, it seems. And they're like, time to empty it. And they fill it up again, time to empty it. Back in Exodus that I was talking about earlier there, where Moses had instructed the people to give, it tells us a little bit later... Um, in the narrative, not right in that passage, but it tells us that the priests come to Moses and they said, look, man, you've got to tell these people to stop giving. There's just so much money, we have nowhere to put it all. Would you tell them to stop? Could you imagine if a charity that you support wrote you a letter and said, hey, you've been, you've been great, everybody's been great, we don't need any more money, please stop sending it. You know what I mean? That's how rejoicing, that's the miracle that was taking place here. So they would empty this chest out every single day, it seems, do the work of the Lord. Verse 12, And the king and Jehoiada gave it to those who had charge of the work of the house. They hired masons and carpenters to restore the house of the Lord, and also workers in iron and bronze to repair the house of the Lord. And when they finished, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada, and with it were made utensils for the house of the Lord, both for the service and for the burnt offerings, and dishes for incense and vessels of gold. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord regularly regularly all the days of Jehoiada. Notice that, all the days of Jehoiada. The king is Joash. The high priest is Jehoiada. That's going to become a significant part of our conversation next week. But we're out of time this week, so uh, we'll stop sort of in the middle of Joash's reign. What I would encourage you to do is read through chapter 25 and 26. Make sure you do so you're kind of ready for the conversation and the Lord is already sort of priming some pumps in your heart over this next week. Okay? Let's go before the Lord's praying. Father, we thank you for a guy like Jehoiada. Lord, we want to be a guy like Jehoiada. We want to be a person, Lord, that maybe does or says what everybody else is thinking uh, to do or say. Lord, that uh, is willing to step out and stand in courage so that you might work uh, through us. Lord, we thank you for his example. Lord, uh, do that same work within and through each of us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.